with the underground Christian network. Lots been happening in this ministry over the last few years. Uh, back in 1985, I don't know, several of you I think were here in 85, uh, God started me in a research on, on uh, the lifestyle of children, Jehovah's Witnesses, and I wrote a couple extra books. Uh, it, it's my time, so my commercials. Um, uh, the first one I wrote was called Cruel and Unusual Punishment. Uh, and it contains, the first part of the book contains uh, the first court testimony I ever gave on the subject of the lifestyle of children, which is the exploitation of children of Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, in fact, it was the first courtroom I'd ever actually been in. And I can remember, I knew I was on the right track because as soon as my testimony was over, and believe me, this was a very tough case, my client had already spent a month in jail for a false charge of child molestation. This is how rough this particular case was. The witnesses threw everything at my poor client. But as soon as my testimony was over, we all went out in the hallway, and the other side was standing maybe 15, 20 feet from us. And one of our attorneys overheard their attorney tell his client, we've had it. We've had it. Why? Because the judge heard the truth. And he knew fully from monitoring the judge, the judge was just soaking this in. He was hearing things he just didn't have any idea about. For him, Jehovah's Witnesses were people who bothered people at the door and perhaps didn't take a blood transfusion. Maybe they didn't sweep the flag. These are the kinds of things that... that uh, the judge and the courts of our land know about. These are the kinds of things that, that are written about Jehovah's Witnesses. I was in there telling them all kinds of other stuff that they had never heard. So I decided, well, I think it would be very helpful to document all this. So I went ahead and I, I wrote this, and then I wrote a book called Sales Kids, which documents the lifestyle of a Jehovah's Witness as a sales child. In other words, the the organization is really raising people, small young people, to be salespeople. And so I called it Sales Kids. And so I've, I've been able to use this material in the courtrooms of our country to be able to show that Jehovah's Witnesses are, are bringing up their children in a very unhealthy lifestyle. Well, the Watchtower didn't like this sort of thing. So. In 86, as soon as I published my books, they put out a, a study, an in-house study, that was not supposed to be seen by Jehovah's Witnesses. And it was a direct reaction to my work in court. I've learned this through the testimony of, of uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Witnesses in court, that this booklet was, was written to combat our work, and it's called Preparing for Child Custody Cases. In here, as some of you know who have perhaps look through this. Again, this is a copy of a Jehovah's Witness uh, publication, uh, which is not supposed to be seen by anyone except a Jehovah's Witness going through a child custody case. The reason why is what I'm about to tell you. What, it, what this is, is a manual on how to perjure yourself in court in regards to your lifestyle. I'll be getting into it a little bit later. But it's a, it's a very devastating piece of material to actually show a Jehovah's Witness. Anyway, 
a lot of things have been happening in regards to that. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more as we go along. Uh, we all set up. Okay, I have something a little bit different for you today. I'm not going to uh, bore you as much with my own uh, personal presentation. I want you to listen to some other folks uh, by way of tape, uh, which will give you insight into what it's like to be in the courtroom. Uh, this first uh, tape involves a, a case I was involved in uh, in 1990, a case we won, and I, uh, I testified as an appeal witness. In other words, if we had lost this particular case, uh, my testimony would have been brought before uh, the uh, appeal committee of judges, but we won. Praise the Lord. Uh, why don't we just roll that and see how that turns out. On is who will be the primary parent? In other words, with whom will their two-year-old son, Alexander, live? For many couples going through a divorce, custody disputes like this one can be painful personal battles that are fought out in the very public forum of the courtroom. Okay, but the case of Dodd versus Dodd in this West Palm Beach courtroom is even more fought than most. But the primary issue underlying this battle is Patricia Dodd's religious beliefs. Calvin, a window shutter salesman, and Patricia, a dental hygienist, were married in 1985. Religion didn't become an issue until a few years later when Patricia, a Catholic, became a Jehovah's Witness. Becoming a Jehovah's Witness was a big departure from Patricia Dodd's previous religious beliefs and one that permanently strained her relationship with her husband. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses typically refuse blood transfusions, don't celebrate traditional holidays, won't vote or have anything to do with politics, and try to spend as much time as possible getting others to understand and join their religion. The Jehovah's Witnesses, a worldwide Christian denomination based in Brooklyn, New York, aggressively protect their First Amendment right to religious freedom. In fact, some 30 U.S. Supreme Court cases have involved the Jehovah's Witnesses. The custody hearing you're about to see will explore Patricia Dodd's religious beliefs, but only that he'll only let Kelvin Dodd's attorney question Patricia Dodd about her religious beliefs as they pertain to her son, Alexander. The judgment is clear that Patricia Dodd's general religious beliefs are not at issue. Overall, the hearing raises troubling questions. Should a judge intervene and take a woman's child away because she's changed her religious beliefs? On the other hand, shouldn't the judge choose the parent who will best take care of the child? But what is best for the child? How is a judge to weigh the positive or negative effects of a parent's religion? If Patricia Dodd forbids her son from wearing a pilgrim hat at Thanksgiving or playing school sports because of her religious beliefs, does that make her a less desirable parent than Kelvin Dodd, whose views are more mainstream? The judge in this case must decide. Richardson says the fact that Patricia is a Jehovah's Witness will put Alexander at risk, both medically, because she'll forbid him from having blood transfusions, and socially, by limiting his activities. Carolyn Waugh, a New York staff attorney for the Jehovah's Witnesses, and co-counsel Alan Forkey, Patricia Dodd's local lawyer, say this is a case of protecting religious freedom, plain and simple. They argue that Patricia Dodd's religious beliefs aren't relevant to the care she'll give her son. They say Patricia Dodd has been a good mother, and that how she chooses to worship has nothing to do with her fitness. Her to the stand. 
Have you had the opportunity? Why? Yeah. Because uh, we want Alex to have a family. We want Alex to have everything that we've had since we've been growing up and um, have the opportunity that we had when we were a baby to grow up and to learn everything and learn and have our choices. What makes you think Alex won't? Because of Pat's beliefs. Well, has, let me ask you this. Has Pat ever told you what her beliefs are? Yes. When? It was during the separation when I talked to her on the phone one time. I said, well, Pat, you'll never be able to come over with us and have our Christmas as a family or have a birthday party or anything like that. And she said, no. That would have been over a year ago, right? Yes. Okay. Is it just not celebrating holidays? Is it anything else? I, I don't understand. Do you have any other problems with what Pat believes? Yes, I, I prefer that Alex have a choice on whether he wants to go to college or not. Whether he wants to salute the flag or not, I believe he has those choices to make for himself. And did Pat ever tell you that Alex wasn't going to college or going to salute the flag? No, she personally did not, no. In fact, Calvin would have, right? No. Well, I read it in a magazine. You read it in a magazine? Right. Where did you get the magazine? It was a, uh, a watchtower thing that was dropped off at my house. They just dropped it off at your house? Right. You can call Calvin Dodd to the stand. Kelvin Dodd talks about religion and about how things change between him and his wife. Now, let's talk a little bit about religion. When you were still living with Patricia and when Alex was born, how did you think Alex was going to be raised from a religious standpoint? Well, I married Pat, who was Catholic. Her parents were Catholic. My parents said Catholic's fine. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that my son was going to be raised Catholic. I didn't feel that I had to get it in writing. Everybody was Catholic fine. Was either Pat or, or her parents asked me how I felt about the Catholic religion, and I said that's fine with me. And everybody was in agreement. So you understood that Alex would be raised in the Catholic religion. The Catholic religion. Okay. Currently, what are your desires in that regard? In as far as raising Alex, in which religion? Alex and I attend the Holy Name of Jesus Catholic Church on the corner of Gun Club and Military. Is that the church that Patricia used to go to? Yes, it is. And wasn't she even in a study group there? A Bible study group. Now, when you started having marital problems, I'm sure the issue of religion came up. You have to answer out loud, okay? Yes, it is. Yes. Did you talk to Pat about her religious beliefs? Yes, I did. Did you talk to her and ask her if she would discuss with you some of your religious beliefs? No, she would not discuss it. Okay. Tell us how that arose. Well, not to go back too far, when she brought home the the Watchtower magazine um, school and Jehovah Witnesses and I read through it and they described how they want you to raise your children I asked her about every one of those beliefs in there and went through that with her and she said yes this is how she wants Alex to be raised did she 
consult with you or talk to you about that first before she made that decision that that's how she was going to raise Alex? No. How about, uh, we, we heard before about the blood card. Tell us again about the blood card. That was when it first started. Um, as far as I was concerned, she said she wanted to study the Bible with a friend. Little did I know. I said, what harm could there be in studying the Bible? I had no idea. Um, when she started, well, when Alex was two months old, I woke up one morning, went into the kitchen table to get some cereal, and I just saw nothing on the kitchen table but a blood card. And it said, in a life or death situation, do not administer blood to me. And she had signed her name, Patricia Ogden-Dodd. And that's when it hit me. I mean, I said, what is this? My wife is, is giving up her life for something. I mean, that was very, very serious to me. I had no idea. And I questioned it uh, thoroughly. She said, yes, she would rather die than, than have a blood transfusion in a life or death situation. What did she... Within the next two weeks, I found out just about all her beliefs. Let me ask you this. Did you discuss whether that blood issue and not receiving a blood transfusion in a life-threatening situation... Did you discuss with her that that applied to Alex as well? Um, yes, because that was when I was discussing uh, the book with her. She agreed to everything. Did, did she consult with you and talk to you about, hey, I don't want Alex to have a blood transfusion? No, she did not. She just made the decision? Right. Did you try and compromise with her at all on these religious beliefs? Yes, I did. I asked her things like, would you at least study with me half the time that you study with these other people? What did she say? She said no. She was not willing to compromise on that? No, she was not. Has she talked to you about how she would raise Alex? She would raise him according to the books that she brought home. So she told me. These are the Watchtower books? Yes. The Awake books? Yes. And also this book, School and Jehovah's Witnesses? Especially that one. Okay, did she give you this? Yes. Calvin okay. Dodd's attorney submitted the Jehovah's Witness book into evidence. The book warns against such things as sports, dating, sex education, and even celebrating holidays. About how Alex would be raised if it was up to Pat. Just about everything in that book bothers me. Are there any reasons on this list or any you've subsequently thought of that do not relate to Patricia being a Jehovah's Witness? these reasons right here do pertain to Pat being a Jehovah Witness. Okay. Thanks. Now, since filling out that list, and other than your right to visit Alexander, can you think of any other reasons as to why Patricia should not be granted? I do not feel that Patricia is a good mother. Why? Well, for one thing, she keeps my son out late every night. I wouldn't say every night, but at least Tuesdays and Thursdays. 
would it be fair to say that relates to the practice of the religion? She doesn't spend any quality time with my son. She spends you know? all her time with the religion. And Alex's birthday, Kevin Richardson has his chance to cross-examine Patricia Dodd. He introduces a transcript of a pre-hearing question and answer session called a deposition into the case. In this deposition, Patricia Dodd talks about her adherence to the Jehovah's Witnesses' belief. Let me ask you if you remember these questions and answers at your deposition. <laughs> what books have you read in preparation for this? Our literature on what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and what I would take as far as in that position or situation. Page 98, line 25. Let me answer to you again. Our literature on what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and what I would take as far as in that position or situation. You mean the documents say what the position of the Jehovah's Witnesses is and what your position should be? Answer, and what my position would be, what position I would take. Do you remember giving me those questions and answers? Yes, with my child. I think I have as much right to have him on the holiday whether I celebrate it or not. But if, let me ask you this question, because we're really not talking about what right you have or what your husband has. We're talking about what right the child has. Is that correct? Okay. What's in his best interest. Is that correct? Yes. Now, would it make any sense for the child to, let's say, celebrate, let's say Thanksgiving, sit down for a Thanksgiving meal, but only on alternate Thanksgivings? I mean, that's not meant to be funny. Or does it make any sense for him to celebrate birthdays but only on alternate birthdays? See what I'm saying? I feel that as one of Jehovah's Witnesses and his father, is, I'm presuming, is becoming a Catholic, I feel because of my religion, we don't celebrate holidays. I have that right to, to teach my child my religion just as his father does. And if, if his religion teaches him that Christmas is a celebration, that's fine. My religion does not. More than a year after the case ended, we spoke to both Patricia and Kelvin Dodd. We asked Patricia Dodd if she felt that the fact that she was a Jehovah's Witness hurt her with the judge. I do, and speaking with um, people that I know that aren't Jehovah's Witnesses feel that way too because they really don't understand why judgment was made like that. And especially uh, at the time, um, he was not even at the age of two, how they could take a child away from uh, their mother. And especially uh, due to the fact that they never could find me an unfit mother. And to take, normally um, in a situation normally where a child is taken away from the parent is because the mother is unfit to take care of the child, whatever lifestyle that the parent has. But in my case, they couldn't find me to be an unfit mother, but yet they did um, take my child away from me, and he wasn't even at the age of two. Kelvin Dodd reached a similar conclusion, though for different reasons, as he recalled his initial hope going into the divorce. What I really wanted out of the divorce was I wanted her to see that um, I was hoping right up until the time that we were in court, I was hoping that she would wake up and get out of the organization, get out of the Watchtowers organization. I really was. Because if she would have gotten out, um, 
wouldn't have had a case. What case would I have? Because all things being equal, I think the mother should get the child. But the thing is, it wasn't equal. Because of her beliefs, see, we never once brought up religion. We just asked Pat, would you let him die if he needed a blood transfusion? Yes, I would. What does that have to do with religion? But see, if their religion has nothing to do with religion, that's what really upsets me. It really does. What does not celebrating Thanksgiving have to do with religion? Nothing. But that's part of their religion. But that's part of their religion. The result of the judge's ruling was that Patricia Dodd has to pay monthly child support for the next 15 years and gets to have Alexander Thursday evening, every other weekend, for three weeks in the summer, and never on holidays. Again, she sees these terms as proof that religion played a role in the judge's decision. We asked Kelvin Dodd if he was uncomfortable with the judge's ruling and if he thought Alexander was missing out on his mother's presence. No, in fact, I told her that um, if you want to come by and see Alex and play with him or uh, want to take him to the mall or something like that, come on by and get him. Play with him, enjoy him. I want him to see his mother. I want him to know his mother. But the thing is, when she's with him, all she does is go door to door, go to the Kingdom Hall. You know, it's, it's, it's indoctrinate, indoctrinate, indoctrinate. You know, it's nothing but... I'm sure he's got a lot of books at her house to read, but I imagine a lot of them are, well, I, I want to say most of them, but are, are from the Watchtower, um, because that's her life. Uh, one time, I think I've seen her place since we were divorced. The, the place was nicely kept, but of course all over the kitchen table were her books where she has all this tremendous studying going on. All she does is study. You know, it's, it's just, study the, you know, she's, she's a religious fanatic. Yes. And we have to I don't want you to go door to door, do I? Well, Judge Gersten says that religion wasn't a part of his decision in the custody hearing of Calvin and Patricia Dodd. It will undoubtedly continue to be a big issue for their son as he is torn between two parents and two worldviews. It wasn't so long ago that judges would have rather routinely sent a child to live with his mother. But that's changing. And with the changes come confounding issues about parenthood and just what it means to be a good parent. For Court TV, I'm Cynthia McFadden. Alex is what it's all about, isn't it? Uh, you know, and we can hope and pray that maybe someday he'll see more in that Christmas tree than just uh, a bunch of little light bulbs and stuff that uh, he'll learn about Jesus where there's real freedom. But uh, we've been busy. Um, that was sort of just the beginning. Uh, every time I go into court, there's Watchtower attorneys there in Brooklyn. Uh, we had a last case, in fact, where uh, we had psychological evaluation of the, uh, of the child and the father, locally, of course. 
a watchtower organization didn't trust the the uh, psychologists in Pennsylvania, so they flew the mother all the way to Washington, D.C. to get analyzed by a Jehovah's Witness psychologist. You can imagine what kind of report it was. <laughs> it's absolutely incredible how normal this Jehovah's Witness is. Uh, that would take an hour just to tell you that story. And literally, I could... I could tell you stories from now until uh, you know next uh, next next year probably some of the things we've been involved in. I just wanted to give you a highlight. Country's interested in children. You know, kids are kids are getting pretty messed up in this country, and people are starting to understand that there are groups that are not uh, that can negatively affect ch children. And, of course, I'm talking about just in a custody situation. I do not because the society gets a copy of, of this. You understand they, they make copies of my lectures. Uh, one, the one they, I did here in 85, they actually transcripted and used it in a court case. So <laughs> they, everything I say is monitored by the Watchtower organization. Every book I write is, is read by the Watchtower Society. They just uh, subpoenaed me for every book I've ever written on Jehovah's Witnesses just uh, about a week ago. So <laughs> I'm telling you, they, they understand uh, where we're coming from, brothers and sisters. Uh, but in a custody situation only, I, I feel if all things are equal, as Calvin Dodd said, uh, if all things are equal, when you've got one Jehovah's, you've got one parent who's a Jehovah's Witness and one parent who's not a Jehovah's Witness, I feel that the non-Jehovah's Witness parent, if everything is equal, should have that child so that child can grow up in a healthy environment and not grow up psychologically damaged by the cult. And by saying this, and I put this on the record for all the society's attorneys who will be uh, listening to this tape, I do not believe Jehovah's Witnesses should have their children taken from them. I do not believe that. However, in a child custody matter, we're talking about a different situation, and that is a matter for the judge to determine. Uh, in this particular case, uh, perhaps you recall that the Calvin Dodd's sister made the point that uh, Alex, the little child, was being socially isolated uh, from uh, the family holidays and opportunities, uh, going to college, was one of the one of the things that uh, uh, she was very concerned with. When I go into court, I have lots and lots of exhibits on different subjects, which I present to the court. Sometimes, perhaps even a couple hundred documents I would present in a court case. Sometimes I'm on the stand for over a day presenting uh, this information, and many times I will read from these court documents. I'll give you an example of a few of them just on the subject of education that the court is quite interested in. This is taken from uh, a week of uh, May 8, 1989, page 12, under the heading, uh, What Career Should I Choose? Speaking of children or young people. It says, You may dream of improving your financial lot in life, but there is more to success than material gain. Can any secular career bring you real fulfillment? And under uh, the subheading of career that satisfies, they say, the prime obligation for Christians today is to preach the kingdom message. 
and used to take seriously this obligation feel compelled to have as full a share in this work as possible, even if they are not naturally inclined towards preaching. Very few are naturally inclined. Instead of pursuing full-time secular jobs, thousands have chosen to serve as full-time evangelizers, pioneers. Others serve as foreign missionaries or at branch offices of the Watchtower Society. Emily, who gave up a career as an executive secretary to become a pioneer, says, I have developed a real love for this work. Um, another one uh, from our Kingdom Ministry of October 89, quote, the Christian ministry can help you cultivate qualities that must be evident in those who will survive Armageddon. There's that Armageddon zinger. Pursuing it full time can enhance your love, faith, joy, and peace. So reach out for and hold on to the pioneer ministry as your treasured career. All right? little encouragement there, right? Um, here's an example from the Kingdom Ministry of, of May of 73 in which... Uh, speaking of um, a, uh, an elder in Korea uh, whose uh, oldest daughter related how she wanted to go to college at one point. However, her father informed her that while she was free to choose such a course, she should not expect financial support from him. She changed her mind about college and now she's enjoying many blessings as a pioneer. Uh, going on, says, uh, Father, speaking of um, the son who wanted to go to college also. Father also told him, quote, that if he insisted on following a worldly course, he would also have to find another place to live. Goes on further to say, quote, the youngest son gave up his high school education to pioneer. By the way, a uh, re recent article um, in the literature pertains to uh, a real problem that witnesses are having around the world with, with the children giving up high school and now they're being encouraged to have enough education at least to be able to uh, pursue pioneering full-time. Not for the sake of getting a good career and being able to financially support a family, but to do the full-time uh, service work. And that just came out. Uh, now listen to this one. This is back in 69. Sometimes I mix, uh, I, I, uh, mix the time frames here and give the, give the court an understanding that this is not something that's just recent but this has a long track record. And uh, in the Awake magazine of May 22, 69, page 15, quote, if you are a young person, you also need to face the fact that you will never grow old in this present system of things. This is 1969. Okay, so what, 23 uh, years ago. This is no longer a young person. As a young person, you will never fulfill any career that this system offers. If you're in high school and thinking about a college education, it means at least four, perhaps six or eight more years to graduate into a specialized career. But where will this system of things be by then? 1975, that was what they were hinting at. It will be well on its way towards finished, if not actually gone, exclamation point. This is why, now get this, this is why parents who base their lives on God's prophetic word find it much more practical to direct their young ones into trades that do not require such long periods of additional schooling. Does God's word say that? Maybe the green monster, but uh, not the Bible. And finally, one other one, just to give you a little more insight. Uh, parents, this is out of the... Uh, uh, 
August 1587 Watchtower. Parents, it is unlikely that your children will highly value spiritual matters unless you do. So hold forth the goals of pioneering and of missionary and Bethel service. Help them to appreciate that the ministry is a career with a future and that there is no real future in worldly careers. Now, if the, if the children respect their parents' opinion, this is going to go a long way into leading them into a career in full-time service with Jehovah's Witnesses. When I go into court, the Watchtower attorneys and their experts say the opposite. They say, oh no, a person is free to choose whether they want to go on to college or not. Now, how many of us have been Jehovah's Witnesses in this room? All right. When you were Jehovah's Witnesses, just think about how many people, how many young people went on beyond high school into a college career and became a, a doctors and attorneys and, and, and uh, zero, this man is saying. It's very, very rare when you find that kind of situation. But that's the kind of thing they want the court to think. That's why I have the documents. Um, sports. Right from the booklet, um, School and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, yes, I have one right here. This one here that was shown in the film. On page 23 it says, Witness parents feel that schools often overemphasize sports. Therefore, in training their children, they try to moderate this emphasis on athletic achievement. They hope their young ones will want to pursue careers not as athletes, but as ministers of God. The Watchtower organization in court tries to emphasize that there are professional athletes who are Jehovah's Witnesses. And yet, this is exactly the information that they're giving the school teachers about their children. They don't want them to be professional athletes. Participation in organized sports, we believe, they go on to say, would expose witness use to unwholesome associations. We also feel that the competitive spirit in modern sports the winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Ideology has harmful effects. So if witness youths feel the need for extra recreation, their parents encourage them to seek such recreation with fellow believers. Isolating that child from what? Little League? From playing with the neighborhood kids, you know, some, some uh, tag or baseball or whatever. It's isolating those children, those Jehovah's Witness children from the rest of the community. No wonder they don't like outside people. They never get to know them. This is the problem. So that's another example of you know, the isolation uh, that uh, they are concerned with. Obviously, there's the issue of blood. And of course, that does come up in court cases, uh, in every court case. Um, I often refer to witness articles in reference to this to back up the point that the issue of blood transfusion and the denial of blood is more important to the witness parent than the life of the child. And what do we hear about testimony this morning just before me? How sad it is that parents who actually love their children very, very much entertain the idea that the child may have to die for this doctrine. But listen to this. It's out of the awake of May 22nd, 51. Quote, we believe it is more important to carry out his commands than to deliberately break, break them by giving my baby blood. Going on, it says, if she died, she would have a chance for the new earth. But if we broke Jehovah's laws, we feel we will lose not only our chance, but the babies for the new earth. And let me see just a little bit more here. 
Those who die faithful to God will be resurrected to live eternally in the new earth arrangement, whereas those who break his laws will perish and never be resurrected. So it was with this far-sighted view of possibilities of eternal life in mind that Rhonda Lebrins said what she did. The scriptures show that in divine judgment periods, such as, uh, such as our day, babes share the fate of their parents, either for good or for bad. Going on, it says, Stated bluntly, better to die now, maintaining integrity, and later to be resurrected than to compromise now and live on for a brief time, only to be later on. So, for the possibility that one may survive Armageddon, or for the possibility that if one dies during, for lack of a blood transfusion, one may be resurrected, they are willing to sacrifice their children in a hospital without the needed transfusion. In the June 15th, 91 Watchtower, page 31, questions from readers. How strenuously should a Christian resist a blood transfusion that, had been carried, that has been ordered or authorized by a court? There's a lot of information just on this one page, but let me just, let me just stress the main point. The main point is that because of divine law, that is God's law, Jehovah's Witnesses will not entertain the option of blood transfusion. Quote, such divine law is not to be taken lightly as something to be obeyed only if it is convenient or presents no problems. God's law must be obeyed. We can appreciate then why the young Christian mentioned on page 17 told a court that she considered a transfusion as an invasion of her body and compared it to rape. Similarly, the 12-year-old quoted on the same page left no doubt that she would fight any court-authorized transfusion with all the strength she could muster, that she would scream and struggle, that she would pull the injecting device out of her arm, and that she would attempt to destroy the blood in the bag over her bed. She was firmly resolved to obey the divine law. If a court-authorized transfusion, and this is very interesting to the court, this is very interesting to the court, quote, if a court-authorized transfusion seemed likely, a Christian might choose to avoid being accessible for such a violation of God's law. Anybody got an idea what that means? That means if you're in an accident and your child is, is, is hurt, perhaps internally bleeding, you entertain the idea of keeping that child away from a place called a hospital. Why? Because the doctor may have to get a court order issued to provide a blood transfusion for that child. So you will actually avoid the hospital because of this ruling. And what happens? Quote, if a Christian did port forth every stren very strenuous efforts to avoid a violation of God's law on blood, authorities might consider him a lawbreaker or make him liable to prosecution. If punishment did result, the Christian could view it as suffering for the sake of righteousness. Folks, since 1991, the, the new ruling is, in case you haven't figured it out yet, Jehovah's Witnesses are mandated to violate court orders. It used to be that you'd go into the hospital and you would have to wrestle with the administrator and you would bring elders in to you know, monitor things and, and you would be very concerned that the child wasn't given a blood transfusion, but if a court order came, you had to sign it and that was, that was what you had to do. No longer. Now, you will keep your kid out of that particular situation, even if it means violating the court order 
or even if it means keeping the child out of the hospital. So that is how far they have gone. I'm going to show something else real quick to you to give you kind of a different aspect uh, on this. The church was the center of their life. Three meetings a week, plus door-to-door preaching. Even the night out in the company of Jehovah's Witnesses. But after her daughter Cindy was born, Hannah began to rebel at the restrictions of life as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. I was curious about the outside world. He wanted me to spend more time preaching. And go from door to door and going to the church and spending more time in the, um, the church. That's why it was the main point. Three years after Cindy was born, Joseph and Anna separated for the first time. Joseph took Cindy and fled to Saskatchewan. Their church stepped in and brought them back together, quietly. When we were separated the first time, um, I wanted to call the police. And they told me, no, it's not necessary for you to call the police. Who told you that? The elders. And why do you think they would tell you that? Because they didn't want nothing to do with the law. What? When Joseph sent you the second time in 1982, Hannah's relationship with the Jehovah Witnesses was on the rocks. She wanted nothing to do with them. Six months after that abduction, elders from her congregation sent her an official request to attend the meeting to answer the charges of sexual misconduct. Anna didn't show up. So Joe Flores' accusations against her stood, and the church disfellowshipped her for adultery. The community that had been her entire life now shunned her. Her own mother was forbidden to speak to her. I don't care about a disfellowship person because they think we're bad evil. That's what they think. I'm disfellowshipped. That's it. Dr. Jim Clinton is a leading scholar of the witness movement in Canada. His fellowship in 1981, Penton knows all about shunning. I know literally dozens of children who will not speak to their parents. I know brothers and sisters who will not speak to one another because one has left Jehovah's Witnesses. And the attitude is that these persons are bound for destruction unless they repent. Is it possible that members of the community could be unmoved by the torment of a mother? If the child goes to the mother and is raised as a non-Jehovah's Witness, then the child dies eternally too. And they'll say, well, it's better that the mother, who is after all an apostate, should suffer. Anna met Peter George six months after the abduction. They were married in 1987. He became her moral support. Peter also financed the search that would dominate the next three years of their marriage. I never gave up. Never. It killed me for a long time. I suffered inside for a long time. I think that's something that still angers us now, is that we lost so many years or wasted so many years in anger and in highs and lows because of a religion that... Uh, you know, it was obviously doing a great deal of wrong. School. Its records weren't registered with the state. Joseph became a member of this congregation soon after they arrived in Florida. This elder told us he employed Joseph as a carpenter and paid him in cash. There were no employment or income tax records. 
Joseph always covered his tracks. But this had serious consequences for Cindy. When she was eight, she pulled a pot of boiling water off the stove and was badly burned. Her father kept her away from the hospital for three long days and nights. Did she cry a lot when she had the burns? No, no, no. no. Don't that weakens her. It would be normal to assume it's that it hurt. Were you crying a lot? Yeah, I was screaming. Scared? It hurt a lot. Do you often wonder why it was your father didn't take you to the hospital immediately? Mm-hmm. I wonder, but I don't know why. The reason seems clear enough. By this time, 1985, Joseph was wanted in Canada and the United States for child abduction. Maximum sentence, 10 years. Bank accounts, phone numbers, and hospital records can be traced. As long as he stayed underground, the police and Cindy's mother would have a hard time finding him. It was much easier for his church to get information about Joseph Florek. Congregations always request a new member's service record from the last congregation he attended. That record includes any moral violations. The dirt on Joseph Florek's church record seems to have warranted some discipline. But elders stopped short of informing police or insisting that Joseph Florek return Cindy to her mother. I asked the elders if they would talk about Joseph Florek and they said they wouldn't do so on camera, but they did admit that they knew him and that he worshipped here. And interestingly enough, they also admitted that they had checked out his past, and based on what they had found out, they limited his privileges to preaching door-to-door and attending services here. But what they wouldn't allow him to do was preach to the congregation, hold the position of elder, or attend national or international conventions. Theologian Jim Penton says witnesses are taught not to lie, but they can be evasive. The fact of the matter is that the Watchtower Society has said, well, anyone who is an enemy is not entitled to information, not entitled to the uh, truth. Lying to the enemy. Who is the enemy? The enemy is anyone who uh, works contrary to the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. The secular state, a disfellowshipped person, anyone such as this is the enemy, and therefore one can use theocratic war strategy, and they do. Can you tell us a little about theocratic war strategy? Theocratic war strategy? Mm-hmm. What is theocratic war strategy? That's a good question. <laughs> theocratic war strategy. Uh, have you ever heard the term? I've heard the term, but it's a very old one. Do you employ it? Do the Jehovah Witnesses employ theocratic war strategy? I don't think I have, no. Early last year, Anna and Peter hired private investigator Tony Turco. Turco says he approached between three and four hundred people for information, almost all Jehovah's Witnesses. Most parental abductions, uh, people would assist and go the full nine yards in assisting to locate the child. Um, with the Jehovah's Witnesses that I talked to, uh, they had no real compassion for the mother. Um, I guess in mind that uh, Anna was not a practicing Jehovah's Witnesses any longer. Break. A secret bank account in the Cayman Islands with a Santiago address on it. With the help of Interpol, Cindy was located. Eight years after Joseph Florek had kidnapped his five-year-old daughter, Anna flew to Chile 
and brought Cindy home. <laughs> and who knew of Cindy Ford's whereabouts years before she was located also refused to speak to us. Could you, could you tell me whether or not you know Joseph Flores? Were you aware that Joseph Flores kidnapped his daughter and took her to San Diego? Could you answer why your wife went to San Diego and spoke to Cindy? What would your reaction be if you found out that an elder of a congregation in Toronto knew the whereabouts of Mr. Florek probably all along? Yeah, I'd be surprised to hear that, yes. Would this be serious? I would say so, yes. Do you have an elder in a congregation in Toronto, Pedro Robb? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't know him at all. Mr. Robb's wife visited Cindy at a foster home in Santiago. What's your reaction to that? Well, that's, what, seven years after the abduction? Yes. Uh, when did they know about the abduction? Uh, when did they know uh, of the location? I, I really can't. Has ever been contacted, ever been faxed, memoed, lettered regarding the location of Cindy Flork? Over the last, uh, what is it, uh, eight years, uh, there has been no correspondence on Cindy Flork. So National Headquarters has no correspondence from Chile, from Santiago, copied to you from the congregation, anything like that? That's not that I know of. Your files wouldn't indicate anything? So not the files I have. No. Could we see the files? Uh, we, uh, this is the extent of my files, which are, are very sparse indeed. And that was 86. That's from... Uh, where's that from? This is from Santiago. Santiago. In 1986? That's from... What does that say? That's in Spanish. Is there a translation? This is from Pedro. No, oh, it's from Pedro, yeah. Saying that he did not inform us where he was moving. So Pedro Rob received communications in 1986 from Santiago, according to this document. Yes, and that's his reply. From what I gather, in, 19, in 1986, the congregation in Santiago, Chile, wrote for information regarding Joseph Flores. Yes, to, to Mr. Rob. And Mr. Rob's reply, saying that he informed them then, in 1986, of the situation that the, he left the country violating the court ruling of his wife's custody of his daughter. Why is he not informing the congregation in Chile that Mr. Fork is wanted for kidnap and that any information would greatly assist in returning Cindy to her mother? You would have to ask him. He must have contacted national headquarters. No, there was no copy of the National Headquarters. Well, then why do you have a copy? Well, I'm sure we have... Doesn't that surprise you? You're holding that file, and it says in 19... Like now about being sort of away from the church. It's different. Is it difficult on you? Yeah. Do you feel one day you may go back to the church? Thank me. That's what bothers me. Can you shun your mother? I don't know. It's going to be a tough decision. That was a fun one, huh? I was called about, uh, well, I guess, 
three years ago on this particular case with a private investigator, Tony Turco, uh, was trying to find this little girl and saying how frustrating it was talking to Jehovah's Witnesses about a kidnapped child. Because, as we know, some of us who have been Jehovah's Witnesses, you have the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then you have all these evil people on the outside, non-Jehovah's Witnesses. And as a Jehovah's Witness, you can use theocratic tact, and you can evade the truth. And that's exactly what you saw in this program. And that's what I deal with all the time when I'm in court. And that's why I have to bring a lot of uh, documents to actually prove to the court that, in fact, what they're hearing from the Jehovah's Witness attorney and the Jehovah's Witness expert, which is usually a Jehovah's Witness attorney, uh, is nothing but a bunch of lies. I can't say it any other way. I'm not that polite. So, poor little Cindy, because she has been influenced and indoctrinated by the Watchtower world for so many years, even after she's reunited with her real mother, who absolutely just loves her to pieces, as you can see, doesn't know that someday, and that's why I cut the clip right at that point, that someday, because of what she's been taught to believe, she may have to shun her own mother. The one she knows loves her to pieces. To me, that's the sickest part of the whole thing. The exploitation of children to the point where they have been turned against their own parents, their own mothers and fathers, who love them so dearly. In court, the watchtower denies it shuns. It denies it. Doesn't know what I'm talking about. From the... April 1st, 85, Watchtower, page 12, quote, The Bible says that any Christian getting involved in immoral practices should be lovingly helped to change his way. If he refuses to make a change, then he should be shunned by Christians, quote, unquote. Just an example. What does this mean? In the July 15th, 65, Watchtower, page 435, speaking of um, relatives, Although that person may be a close friend or a relative, do not resist Jehovah's arrangement by taking sides with that one against the organization. Such unpleasant happenings test your love for Jehovah. See the psychological twisting? Test your love for Jehovah and his organization. You fail to show love and loyalty to Jehovah's organization when you side with persons against whom it is obliged to act. No matter what you conclude, they go on to say, from your own reasoning, follow Jehovah's directions. In other words, if you listen to the parties involved, if you determined that in, in fact this person was in the right, if you determined that, put that aside. Put your brain on hold, deny any independent thinking, and follow Jehovah's direction. This is a cult. And I think that clearly points it out. Um, in the Watchtower 61580, page 8, how do they feel about us at this convention? Some of us who have been fellowship and dissociated from Jehovah's Witnesses. We want to hate those who willfully show themselves haters of Jehovah, haters of what is good. We hate them. 
And how do they hate them? It says, quote, in the sense of avoiding them as we would poison or a poisonous snake, for they can poison us spiritually. And then, of course, bad associations spoil useful habits. What's happening? Oh, so much. Uh, this is from uh, Kansas City Star. Uh, front page of the Sunday paper, February 9th, 1992. Heading, um, A Matter of Faith, Hope, and Custody. Another custody case which we won. And in this case, uh, I'll just quote you a little bit. It says, In an unusual ruling last September, Busca, that is the judge in the case, placed the youngster in the permanent care of Raymond Estes. Busca cited the mother's religious environment and the child's right to love both parents. To grow up thinking your father is a devil, to be alienated from your friends at school, your relatives, I don't think that's in the best interest of a child. There's some examples. In Pennsylvania, a father was restricted from taking his four-year-old daughter door-to-door during visitation. In Colorado, the Supreme Court ruled that the beliefs of a Jehovah's Witness can be weighed in custody matters if they are, quote-unquote, reasonably likely to harm a child. Believe me, they are. In 1990, the Nebraska Supreme Court upheld an order barring a witness father from preaching to his young sons anything not, quote, consistent with with the Catholic religion, unquote. The boys lived with their mother, a Catholic. Jeff Atkinson, chairman of the custody committee of the American Abar Association, said such rulings were forcing Jehovah's Witnesses to choose between their faith and their, who wants to put the word in, children. I've always said and firmly believe that for every Jehovah's Witness you can convince to leave the organization because of the facts at your your disposal, you can keep 10,000 out of it. And those are people you can talk to about the Lord. So God be with you in your ministry, your calling, whatever you're doing. I just want to tell you about some of the things we're doing. And I think it all works together because we're all children and we all need to recognize that Jesus Christ loves these children more than anything. And it's for his, his glory that we all minister for him. And that's what really this, convinced, this uh, convention is about. We are witnesses of Jesus. Yeah.